rightly dividing the word of truth. I especially want our young men to pay attention. It doesn't mean that older men aren't important, and it doesn't mean that younger women aren't important, but young men are going to lead families and lead grandchildren and be instrumental in this church, and young men should know how to read the Bible and rightly divide the word of truth. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Amen. That is ministerial instruction from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Children, you can memorize that verse. Some of you have already come and told me that verse today already. And if there's any other children 10 years of age or under, and if you come as 11, just I'll probably let you slip through. If you know this verse, I want you to know this verse. Study to show thyself approved unto God. This is a minister's calling, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, that doesn't get shamed in his doctrine because he rightly divides the word of truth, which is the Bible. Amen. Here's the Old Testament version. So they read in the book, one book, and it's not a dictionary or a commentary, it's the Bible. Amen. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. Amen. That is how we want to approach the Bible, to read it distinctly and carefully because we value every word and give the sense of the interpretation of its words so that we can understand what God intended for us. Do you remember the lessons we have already covered? What was the lesson? Thou shalt not kill. How many times did the word dog occur in the Bible? Forty. How many different meanings? Nine. Your pastor is a slave to context. Because context tells us so many times how words are to be understood. A lot of cards. Maybe it's 52 pickup or some other card game. This is what you do when you rightly divide the word of truth. You put them with light cards and sort them out so that you don't confuse different meanings or senses that God has for his words. Right. Rightly dividing temptation. Do you remember that? God never tempts, because that's what he says over here in James, by putting lust in men, God does tempt, because he said he tempted Abraham, by proving men with tests. And temptation equals difficult hardships as found elsewhere in the Bible. The Lord's Prayer included the words, and see, we call it the Lord's Prayer. It was the disciples' prayer. It was an outline for prayer. And it said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So there's various ways of looking at the word tempt as it's used in the Bible. What was the word under consideration with this? World. The word world misunderstood by Tim Tebow and 99.99% of most Christians. Who is the seed of Abraham? Which of those three pictures? Number one, two, or three? Number two is the seed of Abraham because we rightly divide the word of truth based on what it tells us. What lesson did we get from this picture? Swearing. That you better swear by the true and living God, because he only deserves the worship of swearing, you better swear for an important matter and you better keep your word. 
the basic three rules of proper swearing. What was this? these two pictures for? What was the lesson here? What have we rightly divided? It, musical instruments. The Old Testament had them. Heaven has them. We don't have musical instruments because in the New Testament we're told to sing. And, they, and we're different as a church because of that. Because we don't care what instruments they used in the Old Testament because that was a whole different form of worship. Jesus said it was going to pass away. Paul called it beggarly, carnal, worldly, rudimentary, elementary compared to the more mature form of worshiping God of the New Testament which is an internal religion that is met perfectly by a cappella singing. Okay, what's the one word? Nephilim. Angels came down and had sex with human women. And that's the result. Or it's as good a guess as anyone else. What about this one? What was the lesson? Justification. Is justification by faith or is justification by works? Romans says by faith. James says by works. Martin Luther couldn't handle that apparent contradiction, so he altered the Bible two different ways. We understand that difference. If you do not divide salvation right, you will embrace heresies. Now we're into a, the lessons for today. We've only got 200 slides. If you go to our website and look at recent sermons entitled Rightly Dividing and click on that little line, it will say we have 523 slides. And so we've got 200 more to go through right now. If you do not divide salvation, you will embrace heresies. What is this heresy? I've given you a hint. It's called extreme unction or last rites. The Catholics have seven sacraments to get you to heaven. This is if you didn't care about the other six until you were on your deathbed and you had two minutes to go. You get the priest to come in with holy chrism and he'll get you in there. All these inventions because of not rightly dividing salvation. Oh, uh, let's just move on. That was before baby gets into this world. That is the Roman Catholic device for intrauterine baptisms. In case you were afraid of a miscarriage. Now this little guy, or girl, who can tell, is getting saved. So is this one. At least they tried immersion. So today at church, a guy in a suit tried to drown me. And I kid you not, my family just stood there taking pictures. That's, that's infant baptism. Still waiting for anyone to show me infant baptism in the Bible. Because we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. 90 to 95% of all so-called Christians baptize infants. This is a baptistry. Why is it on the backs of 12 oxen? It's Mormon. It's underground. I don't care if you think you see a window or not, you don't see a window. They, they all look like they have windows, but it's underground at their temples. And this is where you go to be baptized for the dead. This is their genealogical records in Granite Mountain near Salt Lake City where they have a nuclear proof re record system. Looks like this. 
That's just one of the aisles for genealogical records so that you can go be baptized for dead relatives that never had the privilege of meeting Joe Smith and getting a Mormon baptism. Because you need a Mormon baptism to get to heaven. If there is one subject that must be rightly divided, it should be eternal life in heaven with God. Yet the differences about salvation are legion. You know why I pick that word, don't you? Because lies are from the devil. Due to most not rightly dividing. Here are a few hundred questions exposing the ignorance about salvation by those outside Rome. You may remember that long sermon series where we came up with a few hundred questions for them. When were you saved is one of the questions that they like to ask. By asking the question, it shows they have a great deal of ignorance about salvation. This question proves a person does not divide, or rightly divide for sure, the most crucial topic in the Bible. Why would you ask that question, when were you saved? Because they are all looking for an event, an act, something they did, that they should be able to put a date to it. How would Paul have answered this popular question, when were you saved? Well, Paul answered it in Romans chapter 13 by saying he wasn't saved yet, but that our salvation is nearer than when he believed. Paul said he was not yet saved, but he would be saved soon. Okay, way to go, Paul. You're not saved. If you're going to ask the apostle, when were you saved? He said guarding himself and doctrine could save him. He said that in 1 Timothy 4.16. He needed to guard himself and be vigilant to his doctrine, and he could save himself and hearers. He said salvation was by God's eternal purpose before the world began. So that's, Paul said he was saved before Adam and Eve were created. Now, which is the truth? He's not saved. He can save himself. And he was saved before the world began. Which is the truth? All of them. And there's more. He said salvation was by the Holy Spirit in Titus chapter 3, regenerating men. He said salvation was when Jesus came to earth. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So it's when Jesus came to earth. Now which one is it? They're all true. But no one wants to rightly divide the word of truth, so they end up in so many errors on salvation. When were you saved? The question as intended today is ridiculous and was never asked by apostles or any person that understood the truth. It's not in the Bible to ask a question like that. Without rightly dividing salvation, men teach many heresies and nonsense about getting to heaven. Here's an example. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All spiritual blessings. God has blessed those that are in Christ Jesus with those blessings. In including anything in heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing that he has for his children is in Christ. The question becomes, how do we get in to Jesus Christ? How do we get into Jesus Christ? I was posed this question on the radio. Some of you know about this many decades ago. The question is good. All spiritual blessings are in Christ. How do we get into Jesus Christ for those spiritual blessings? 
How do we get into Jesus Christ? The person that posed the question to me on the radio in about 1985 was a follower of Alexander Campbell, so we call them Campbellites. They call themselves the Churches of Christ. Here's what they wanted to do. They wanted to go to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So they wanted to say that their doctrine of baptism for the remission of sins is how a person gets into Jesus Christ where all of God's spiritual blessings in heavenly places are found. Now when we go back to this verse, can someone quote or read the next verse? According Oh, so God the Father blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world Amen. that we should be holy and without blame before him in love Amen. having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself to the praise of the glory of his grace who hath made us accepted in the beloved. Amen. They don't care what the rest of the sentence says. I didn't break a period in all that I just quoted to you. It's all one sentence. But Alexander Campbell, a Presbyterian, became a Baptist, a primitive Baptist, and then became the Church of Christ in about 1830. And uses verses like this to attach to salvation and God's spiritual blessings. No! More Nephilim? Another connection of verses that do not belong together? Why do we get Nephilim? Because Genesis chapter 6 says the sons of God married the daughters of men, and those that believe in Nephilim just run over to Job where they can find that sons of God, in a rare use of the word, refer to angels. Okay? But this doctrine is just like that because it takes all spiritual blessings are in Christ, and we can get into Christ by baptism. Campbellites, known as the Church of Christ, teach salvation by baptism. Our blessed God and Father gave them rope to hang themselves because those four verses sound like salvation saves as well. I love the word of God just the way it's written. Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. John 3, 5. Except ye be born of water, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Acts 2, 38. Repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of sins. Acts twenty two sixteen. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Sounds good. It's wrong. God in great mercy showed us five phases of salvation. The way that Paul answered the question, when were you saved, Paul? Those five phases of salvation are right here. This chart is 35 years old. Look at the verse at the top. Does it look familiar? Can some of our children quote that right now? We have the eternal phase of salvation, of what God did before the world began, the legal phase of what Jesus did on the cross, the vital phase of what the Holy Spirit has done to you since you were conceived, the practical phase of what you should go home today to do, and what God is yet going to do for us in the final phase when he glorifies us. There's more information on this one page right here than you get in a seminary degree in soteriology which is the doctrine of salvation. You've got the description in general. You've got the fact that men are condemned five different ways, and then you have salvation five different ways. 
We are saved from the plan of sin. Yes, God planned sin or it wouldn't be here. We're saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the practice of sin, and the presence of sin. Are you looking forward to being saved from the presence of sin? Thank you, blessed God. A basement office, blue carpet, my face down in it, blessing the Most High God for some inspiration to take his inspired word and to put it into columns and rows. And so we rightly divide the word of truth. Where does baptism fit? Does baptism fit in the legal phase? That by being baptized, we, we get the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross? Do we believe in baptismal regeneration? Do we despise baptismal regeneration? Amen. Is baptismal regeneration the single worst mistake ever made, error, heresy ever made about salvation? This is where it fits, right here, the practical phase of salvation. We practically obey. God has elected us in the first column. Jesus died for us in the second. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. And then we obey in the fourth column. But we're already elect, justified, and regenerated. And we shall be glorified. And we have this on our website to lead you through it. That's Tony the Evangelist. Not rightly dividing salvation leads to all kinds of other huge errors as a result. The free will of man, because they don't believe the total depravity that the Bible teaches. Conditional election rather than unconditional election. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after him. But how many did he find? None. They have unlimited atonement that Jesus died even for those in hell. When Jesus died on the cross, he was paying for the sins of 4,000 years of men in hell. Baptismal regeneration, that you get regenerated in the waters of baptism, and that means infants for 95% of so-called Christians. Justification by faith, and they leave off works. Decisional regeneration, that's the Billy Graham approach, the Jack Hiles approach, the Charles Finney approach, D.L. Moody approach. They invent the age of accountability. They invent the age of accountability. What is the average age of accountability in fundamentalist churches? What's the number? Twelve. Do they spank children before 12? Why do they spank children before 12 since they're not accountable? Unbelievable. Do you know why that age of accountability is there? Because of the Church of Christ and their thoughts like that, that if you have to be baptized to be saved and we don't believe in infant baptism, then how do we cover our children from 0 to 12? The age of accountability. Then why was, how was I saved at three? If I'm not accountable till 12, how was I saved at three? I can't go to hell at 11, but I can go to heaven at three? Will you help me? The Great Commission. They think that it's still hanging out there as an obligation for us to fulfill. They don't know anything about the apostles and what they did. They, they want to forget the ten references in the New Testament that say the apostles preached to every creature under heaven throughout the whole world right. and fulfilled that commission before Jesus came in destruction on Jerusalem. And you can lose your salvation. All this comes up with from not rightly dividing salvation. This 
is a blessing from God to us. Amen. And see, we divided. How many stacks of cards are there on the table? Five. Because there's five phases of salvation. We thank God for hearing about two salvations. They got us 40% of the way we, from the primitive Baptists. Now they publish our five phases around the world as the most definitive presentation of their doctrine. Just go home and play, type in five phases of salvation and after our entry, see what pops up over and over. Yep. When he had by himself purged our sins, the Bible tells us, sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now this verse, I quoted it to you a minute ago. And now why tarriest thou, Ananias said to Saul of Tarsus, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins. When he had by himself purged our sins, which one is true? They both are. Jesus died for our sins legally and put them away in the sight of God. We go into the waters of baptism to wash them away practically, symbolically, representatively, and metaphorically as we profess our faith in Jesus Christ who died for us to put away our sins. How do we get our sins washed away so we can go to heaven? By the blood of Jesus himself or by our baptism in water. By the blood of Jesus himself. Rightly dividing baptism. Jesus purged our sins by his own obedience and substitutionary death. We are baptized in a figurative picture of his death and resurrection for our sins. First right. Peter 3.21. Yes, it's my favorite verse about baptism for three good reasons. Amen. Number one is right here, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. It says that baptism is a figure, which means if it saves us, it saves us figuratively. Amen. Number two, it says in this verse, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Baptism does not wash away our sins. Number three, baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. If you already have a good conscience before you go into baptism, then that means you know you're already washed from your sins before you go into baptism because it's the answer of your good conscience. Right. Your conscience is made good by knowing about the shed blood of Jesus Christ for your sins. At least that's what Hebrews 9 teaches about a good conscience. Thank you, Lord. So we rightly divide. Paul, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Figuratively, representatively, symbolically in the waters of baptism for what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Not rightly dividing baptism is one of the greatest errors that has led to all kinds of other heresies. If you get messed up about baptism, and they do, a fatal assumption is that baptism saves. As soon as you accept that fatal assumption that baptism saves, here's what you end up doing. You end up pouring if there isn't enough water around for immersion. You end up sprinkling for the same reason and because mothers don't like their little infants being dipped. And then you go to infant baptism because what if a child's going to... Back in the day when more children died in childhood than they do today, how did Catholic priests comfort their mothers? How did theologians comfort mothers? By inventing infant baptism. It's an invention of men out of the Roman Catholic Church and the early church fathers coming up with that. There's no infant baptism in the Bible. 
Then you come up with baptism of desire if you can't get near a baptistry. The Catholics have baptism of desire. You can have in utero baptism, as I showed you an instrument for that. Then you come up with the age of accountability, and that's from the Church of Christ. Because they're not going to baptize you until you're old enough to look like someone that was baptized in the Bible. And if they're going to wait that long, then what happens to a person before that? Then you need an age of accountability. Or you need to de deny original sin. Or you come up with baptism for the dead of the Mormons. Here's immersion. There's a guy in a suit. Those pajamas would keep you warm in the coldest of winters. You could wear those things in an igloo. Oh, isn't this fun? Look at mommy. Look at baby. I don't blame you, bud. You didn't ask for it. Your conscience is totally inactive. You don't even have one you won't for a couple of years. Baptism for the dead of the Mormon church. Reference Bibles and most commentaries connect the next two verses. I'm going to show you two verses. This is why I don't like reference Bibles. Reference Bibles and most commentaries connect the next two verses, but we divide them by the two verses following. So here we go, four verses. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, and of the Spirit he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Well, by connecting those two, we've got baptismal generation, regeneration. Because we're born again by water, and that's by baptism. So they, um, I tell you, you can open your Bible and look at the cross-references for John 3, 5, and it's going to say Mark 16, 16. What do we do? He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Oh, you want to deal with water? We're going to show you how to divide water. Rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit. He wasn't speaking of baptism. He was speaking of the Spirit. This is John 7. It comes shortly after John 3, 5, where it's said to be born of water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive on the day of Pentecost. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Then we go to Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing, notice the word, of regeneration. And it's performed by whom? By a pastor? No, it's performed by the Holy Ghost. I hope all of you are paying attention because I've turned the lights out. Just a reminder, Brandon Burlesworth would say to you that there's someone always watching. Right. In this room, it's two are always watching. God and me. Just a reminder. Do you understand that connection? We go from John 3 to John 7 and find out that there is something called living water, which is the Holy Spirit. And when we go over to Titus chapter 3, it's the washing of regeneration. There's no baptism in John 3, 5. That's being washed by the regeneration of the Holy Ghost. You say, why is it repeated twice? Really? Do you want to ask me that? Why does it say, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit? You want to ask me? I'm glad you asked me. 
Why did Paul write in Titus 3.5, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost? To give you a perfect cross-reference that he wasn't talking about baptism. Thank you for asking. You're welcome for answering. To impress this point on you, over 90% of all so-called Christians do not practice Bible baptism due to ignorance and tradition. We believe the Bible, that we were made sinners by one man and were made righteous by one man. If that's true, how can you get baptized without a man? Have I shown you a baptistry yet or a baptismal method that doesn't involve some man doing something? No, I haven't. I wrote a Church of Christ woman this, this week from this verse. I said, answer me one question. How you can get your baptism for the remission of sins done without anyone obeying. Because here's what the Bible tells us. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. We love that verse. And we love the seven verses that come in front of it. Adam made us sinners. That's why babies die. The Lord Jesus Christ made all that are in him alive and righteous. And that's by election. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now, the Bible says that. There's the obedience of one that made us righteous. But this verse says, and the Church of Christ loves this verse, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. All them that obey him is simply a description of evidence of those that Jesus died for. And so we rightly divide again. We're rightly dividing everywhere we read through the Bible because God wrote the Bible in such a way as to trip men up and trap them in false doctrine if they don't want to take the time and the effort and they have the fearlessness to go against the men before them in tradition to study the Bible for itself. We rightly divide that Jesus' obedience is the conditional means and our obedience is only evidence and proof. That's how the verses fit together. How about Bible prophecy? Do we divide the Bible there? Do we boldly divide the Bible there? I don't want to confuse you, but this is Daniel 7, and the time of this prophecy is time and times and the dividing of time. That is 1 plus 2 plus 1 half equals 3 and a half. Three and a half years on the Jewish calendar would have 1,260 days. Okay? That's Daniel 7. Time, times, and the dividing of time. Three and a half. Daniel 8 has 2,300 days. Daniel 9 has 70 weeks. 70 times 7 equals 490 Days. Daniel chapter 12, time, times, and a half. Unprecedented in the Bible, what we're about to do. Do you understand what we've just looked at? This is the little horn of Rome, three and a half. The little horn of Greece, 2,300 days. God on Israel. 490 days till Messiah. The destruction of Jerusalem. Prophetic time. Daniel 7 
1260 days, three and a half. Three and a half years results in 1260 days. We understand that as prophetic years of papal Rome because it's the little horn of the Roman Empire, which would need 1260 years from 610 A.D. to 1870 A.D. So we go with years. Daniel 8, 2300 days are the actual days of Antiochus IV, who was called Epiphanes. Daniel 9, 490 days, we go back to years unto Messiah, because 490 days wouldn't have gone, and that's a year and a half. From Daniel to Messiah? No, Daniel was writing in 456 B.C. Daniel 12, 1260 days, actual days. Do you mean to tell me, Pastor, that in Daniel, the way you interpret the Bible, in Daniel 7, which is the first chapter of his prophecies, you go with years, then you go with days, then you go back to years, and then you go to days? How can we go from chapter to chapter and change the time interpretation back and forth? Easily. By rightly dividing the word of truth based on clear context. Do you need a picture of Charlton Heston to get the point? Okay. Where is this document? On our website. We have it all laid out very carefully. If we do not divide the way I just explained to you, then we must follow William Miller into the shameful heresies of the Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses starting in 1844. Because he took the 2,300 days of Daniel chapter 8 and made them 2,300 years, 456 B.C., 2,300 minus 456 is 1844. Here they are. Three of the most ignorant and heretical Christians ever. And I use Christians very loosely. They're the ones that these two, this guy right here, came up with 1844. He gave up after he failed twice, once in March, once in October of 1844. It was called the great disappointment in religious history in America. This demented teenage girl took over and is Ellen G. White. She married James White. Her name is Ellen Harmon, her maiden name. And she led the Seventh-day Adventists as their prophetess. She is the one that went to heaven, opened the Ark of the Covenant, saw the Ten Commandments there, and the commandment about the Sabbath day was highlighted and glowing. So she came back and told her people, and that's why they are Seventh-day Adventists. Charles Russell came along to a group of discouraged, depressed followers of William Miller and started the Jehovah's Witnesses by moving the first co the coming of Christ to 1874. All of this because back here, they didn't want to do any work. Right. Now, William Miller took a year's sabbatical. He sat down with a Bible and a concordance. When you see somebody with a Bible and a concordance, and they think that they're going to arrive at truth with those two documents, it's very scary. We want to be literalists. So when we read 1260 days in chapter 7, and then again in chapter 12, and we want to, we want to go with what's obvious, but you know it, it is obvious. I'll show you how obvious it is. We're supposed to rightly divide the word of truth because we don't want to be like William Miller and Ellen Harmon White or Charles Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses and be ashamed. 
The Grecian Empire takes Persia. That's what Daniel chapter 8 is about. Do you remember the he-goat and the ram of Daniel chapter 8? It's a very simple chapter. Alexander the Great is the notable horn of the Greek Empire. Right there. Notable horn. About to impale the ram of the Persians. Daniel chapter 8. I'm shortening this for you. Here's the 2,300 days. It's verse 13 and it's verse 14. But if we pop down just a few verses, the ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia. Now you just can't get any simpler than that. The rough goat with the notable horn is Alexander the Great of the Greek Empire. The great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Who was the first king of the Greek Empire? Not the Macedonian nation, but the Greek Empire. It was Alexander the Great. The Greek Empire lasted less than 350 years, so it is impossible for 2,300 years to be squeezed into it. Are you, are you with me how simple it is? Because God put that verse in there, we understand that there is a time limit of 330 years on the Greek Empire, so there can't be 2,300 years. The 2,300 days has got to be days. And sure enough, it was only 2,300 days or less than seven years that Antiochus IV of Greece, one of the horns that sprang up for Alexander being killed at the early age of 30, he is the one that desecrated the temple in Jerusalem and was thrown out of it by the Maccabees. It's taught in Daniel chapter 8, and it's taught again in Daniel chapter 11. And Jesus honored that festival in John chapter 10 and verse 20 when he was in Jerusalem and went to Solomon's porch in the temple at Hanukkah, which is remembering the Maccabees for throwing the Greeks out of the temple. If we do not divide, then we follow childish and silly notions to keep our fantasies. Here We're moving to another one. There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus said that three times. There are those that you know, some of you know, it's pitiful. They say this is the fulfillment. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart. That's Matthew 17, 1. This is Matthew 16, 28. There are no verses between. Well, isn't that cute and convenient? Jesus said, there be, some stand, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How many died between Matthew 16, 28 and Matthew 17, 1? During these six days, no one. Men too fearful of preterism will connect these unrelated verses. No one died at all that was standing there. Jesus did not come in Matthew 17, he was just seen, transfigured. There was no power. The kingdom of God had to come with power. And there was no kingdom. So we divide them. And we pull Matthew 17, 1 away from Matthew 16, 28. And understand that what, how many years do we need for some standing there to die, that there would only be some left to see the kingdom of God come with power? About 40 years, about the destruction of Jerusalem, when the Lord Jesus Christ did come. And of course, for many of these points, there's links 
to much more thorough documentation on our website. Rightly dividing is crucial for prophecy, just like for doctrine. What we did in Daniel saves us from being the Seventh-day Adventists of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It helps us identify the little horn of Rome, that it's the man of sin of Daniel, I mean of Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, helps us understand the beasts of Revelation by rightly dividing. This you went through last Sunday, so we can go through this quickly. These are snake handlers. They look at this passage of Scripture and they're very consistent with it because Jesus said they shall take up serpents. Who in the Bible took up a serpent? Did he get it out of a box that he had taken to church that day? Was he on the island of Melita? Was he putting some sticks on the fire and it jumped out of the fire at him? Yes. Here we go with Cody Coots. There's Cody after. And there's Cody, his friend, about to haul him to the hospital. And there's Cody, his friend. And there's terrible disgrace done to the Holy Bible, the Word of God, the King James Bible, by people that behave like they do. Why does this woman not have her hair cut? Because she's a Pentecostal. You can't cut your hair. Where do you find that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. Oh, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They do that as well. There we go. Here's what it says in the front of the pulpit in that church. The pastor and congregation are not responsible for anyone that handles the serpents and gets bit. If you get bit, the church will stand by you and pray with you, and the same goes with drinking the poison. That's a different church, but that's, anyway... There's Cody Coote's father who died in seven minutes by being bit on the hand. Jamie Coote's was one of the uh, most popular because he did this for a number of reality TV-type documentaries. And there's his stone. He made it to about uh, 42 years of age. The apostolic gifts lasted one generation only, but these folks would be bored without loud music and handling rattlesnakes as you can tell by watching. Rightly dividing is for apostolic gifts that do not apply to others. Did we do that in John 16? When the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. Who was Jesus speaking to? Eleven apostles that wrote down that all truth in the epistles of the New Testament. Here's Benny Hinn. He's added to Mark 16 by slaying in the spirit. Benny Hinn fears snakes and poison, so he uses the gifts most easily faked. Tongues is most easily faked because you can either do it intentionally or you can put a person under, in some measure of psychosis and they'll babble in gibberish. You can fake healings and you can fake slaying in the spirit because there's no spirit present except the spirit of the evil one. Right. Because the Bible tells us there's another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. Right. Bob Jones University, what do they do with Mark 16? Well, they get in there and find out that he said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. They make fun of these people while they make this the most important thing in life. BJU rightly mocks snake handlers and fake healers while using the very same passage limited to the 11 apostles. The 11 apostles went out and they went everywhere 
the Lord confirming his work with signs, and they preach the gospel to every creature which is under heaven. Colossians 1.6, Colossians 1.23, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 1, there's 10 references because Jesus could not come and destroy the city of Jerusalem until the gospel had been preached in all nations. He said so in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness, then shall the end come. Now, if we don't rightly divide that, if we don't get the gospel out through John Hagee and others, Jesus can't come back the second time. But we understand that because Matthew 24 is about the destruction of Jerusalem and it was fulfilled. They preach the gospel as a witness. This is what's going to happen to the Jews that crucified Jesus. This is what's going to happen to the Jews that crucified Jesus. This is what's going to happen to the Jews that crucified Jesus all through the earth. Then it happened to the Jews that crucified Jesus. They are shocked. Bob Jones is shocked when they are shown the ten passages proving the Great Commission fulfilled before 70 AD by the apostles because they've never looked at those verses or thought about them. They have to use Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, because that's what their whole mission's work is based on. If they didn't have that verse, the the, uh, the enrollment at Bob Jones would be cut in half in one week. The snake handlers are consistent. Benny Hinn is inconsistent. Bob Jones is very inconsistent for going into that passage that doesn't belong to them. Who is this? The woman. This is deep doctrine. Rahab. Mark? Brother. Excellent. Rahab. She's telling her city magistrates and sheriffs they went that away. Did they go that away? No, they went another way. She was hiding them. Who is this? It's Rahab. What is she doing? She's lying to the police of her city. Did God approve of her doing that? Yes. Yes. A false wit- but the Bible says a false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. Does that sound like she's in trouble? I said, sound like she's in trouble. Yes. God loved her much. She was a grandma of David. She was a grandma of Jesus. Even though she was a prostitute of Jericho and a Canaanite, God saw her lie as good works. She is listed in James chapter 2 as proving she was a justified righteous woman by lying. Right. Why did she lie? To glorify God and preserve his two spies alive. There are many more examples of lying in the Bible for good reasons. Lying in the Bible for good reasons. The Hebrew midwives come to mind. David told more than anyone else, but he had to to survive because Saul was constantly seeking his life. If you do not learn rightly dividing for ethics which is what we just did very quickly, then you will cause yourself grief and pain throughout life. You will also wickedly judge others by appearance rather than righteous judgment. Rightly dividing is for Christian ethics when facing hard decisions. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Who wants to lead us? I want to know what Jerusalem you're going to pray for before I let you pray. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Is that what we're supposed to pray for? Does this man know what to pray for? John Hagee, the greatest lover of Israel in the United States. 
Christians united for Israel. We rightly divide this city of Christ-haters from the spiritual city of Jerusalem God loves. Galatians chapter 4 tells us that the Jerusalem on earth is to be compared to Hagar, that the Jerusalem which is above us can be compared to Sarah. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that they have come unto Mount Zion and to the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 13 says there is no continuing city on earth. These verses are just wonderful. There is no... Look at to whom it's written. And who wrote it? Who wrote? Who penned the words? Paul. What was he? A Jew. And he wrote these to Hebrews who were Jews. And he said, we have no continuing city on earth. They think the city of Jerusalem is going to last forever. For here, there it is. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We seek one that's going to come down from heaven upon earth in the picture of the, of the revelation as Jesus Christ gave it to us. What kind of a person wrote these words? A Jew. What kind of people were they written to? Jews. Rightly dividing must grasp the reformation of the Old Testament to the New Testament. The Bible tells us that there was a time of reformation which did away with the meats and the drinks and the divers' washings and the carnal ordinances that you read about in the book of Leviticus that were imposed on the Jews until the time of Reformation when John, Jesus, and the apostles reformed religion. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, this is the woman of Samaria, Believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Right. Worship went away from that place. We've received a kingdom which cannot be moved. Amen. We are in the final gospel millennium of the time on this earth. There is no future anything on this earth but what we have right now. Because the next thing is a new heaven and a new earth. We certainly divide the Roman Catholic Church Reformation from the apostolic one. This is a good one. Malachi chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. These are the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5 and 6. Malachi said, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah the prophet, which was for to come. And this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Was John the Baptist Elias? Jesus said he was. Was John the Baptist Elias? John the Baptist said no. Jesus said yes. John the Baptist said no. Which is true? Both are true. John knew that he wasn't the reincarnation literally taken of John the Baptist. And since they didn't ask their question carefully enough, he didn't answer it any more carefully. And I love him for it. The first Baptist preacher had fun with dispensationalists that didn't understand the Bible. Jesus and Luke proved John was the prophesied Elijah, but John denied the Jewish fable that he was Elijah come back literally. 
For the love of money is the root of all evil. Is the love of money the root of all evil? How many of your sins are because you love money? Not very many? I hope. How much did Adam and Eve get paid in the Garden of Eden? The love of money is the root of all evil. Bible skeptics love it because they know that most sins don't involve money. They know, we love it because it means all kinds. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We rightly divide the word of truth and understand what this means. When the Bible says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, is that absolutely true or relatively true? Relative. Relatively true on marrying a virtuous woman. The love of money is the root of all evil. Is that absolutely true or relatively true? It is the root of all kinds of evil. We love it because that's just what we need and use for 1 Timothy 2.4, which is just over a page or two to the left. Who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. What are the three verses before that? I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere for all those that are in authority who will have all kinds of men to be saved, just like the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is how we approach the Bible. Now, Bob, let's go back to Bob Jones. When they get into 1 Timothy 2.4, is all men to be saved absolutely all men? That God is doing his very best to save every single one? Yes. What do they do back here? Do they know that it's all kinds of evil? They absolutely do. What does that say about them? That they're inconsistent. Here's what we know about God. And I quoted these to you this morning. What if God, willing, who will have all men to be saved, what if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Here we go. It's 1 Peter chapter 3. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. What do Pentecostals do with a verse like this? Remember, they can't cut their hair. Those are some decent locks. Looks like Rapunzel. I commend their zeal. They discourage me by their heresy. Why not do this? That way you wouldn't have to worry about makeup, jewelry, or anything. Then there's these. Where do they get these notions from? We know the passage, 1, Timothy 3, 1 Peter 3.3, 3, we know the passage only tells women to emphasize character over dress. That's, that's how we rightly divide those verses. The passage only tells women to emphasize character because if we take it literally, it tells them not to put on any clothes. Here we go. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of put plating the hair, of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel. Right. So they shouldn't put anything on. If you're going to take it absolutely like they do, we would end up in that. So we rightly divide. Is it right for us to say, uh, let's just... 
Is, is God the author of confusion? Jonah, you were quick to answer. It says God is not the author of confusion. Okay, that's a good answer. Amen to both sides of that coin. God is not the author of confusion. God there did confound the languages of all the earth, so he is the author of confusion. He expects church assemblies to be orderly without confusion, 1 Corinthians 14. But he has certainly confused men that reject him. And here's one of the verses, For this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, and that is certainly being the author of confusion, but not in his church services. Okay, since I didn't want to make 700 slides, there's a table of a whole lot more of divisions that we make in the Bible. And some of these are pretty big and pretty important. The Sermon on the Mount itself is huge, the, top, the one at the top. The Hebrews warning passages, how much the Lord has saved us with understanding the book of Hebrews. Just a couple of wrong ones and we'll go. This study wouldn't be complete without some popular and foolish wrong divisions. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. That's what the angel told Daniel. Most Christians divide these 70 determined weeks to force an undetermined gap of at least 2,000 years between weeks 69 and 70 without any Bible reason. So we're talking with wrong divisions. They take a commitment of 70 determined weeks on Israel and they stick a gap of 2,000 years and it's growing in between 69 and 70. They wrongly divide Bible prophecies whenever the Bible disagrees with their futuristic fables about Israel. And so they come up with charts like this where they can call this the age of grace, the church age. They can call it anything they want. Notice down here at the bottom they call it a mystery because it's a gap between the 69 weeks, and I'm sorry for my circling, and the 70th week. So they make all these charts and they jam in gaps wherever they want them to come up with a seven-year tribulation in the future, and it's 2,000 years old and past. They're pouring in water. What do they pour out? Wine. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. Many Christians say Jesus never drank wine, that Bible wine was not alcoholic, that new wine was not alcoholic, and that wine was diluted with water. But Jesus was called a wine-bibber. And men that drank this diluted Kool-Aid in the Bible got drunk from, Mo from Noah on. Jesus drank wine. He was opposite of John the Baptist. Bible wine was alcoholic. That's why you got drunk with it. New wine was alcoholic as much as old wine it's just a more current vintage that's all it means if you go into a restaurant and say may i have some new wine they're going to bring you a 2018 17 16 vintage they're not going to bring you grape juice a new wine is just a more current vintage if you say an old wine they're going to look at you and be thinking about their tip that's coming up because they're going to bring you a list where the bottles are over a hundred dollars a piece 
And the Jews would never have wasted wine by diluting it with water. It is ridiculed in Isaiah chapter 1 by being as dumb and foolish as putting dross back into silver that's been refined. How many refiners do you know have refined silver product and then put the dross back into it? It's Isaiah chapter 1. We let the Bible defend us. Who is this man? I gave you a hint. It's Billy Sunday. He was a baseball player, and boy, he was a preacher for the temperance movement. That's about his... See, I'm pretty calm. He looks calmer in his old age, but uh, he looks pretty old right there. That's Billy Sunday preaching against alcohol by not rightly dividing between the moderate use of alcohol and being drunk. We hate drunkenness. Lips that touch liquor shall not touch ours. Thank you for the blessing. <laughs> Not everyone who gets hit by a drunk driver dies. So this is some Jacqueline that was 20 years old. Now, when we look at a picture like that, should that affect how we interpret the Bible? No. Uh-oh. C.I. Schofield. What was the name of the first book he wrote? I gave you a hint. Rightly dividing the word of truth. We'll quit with this little simple one. This congregational heretic taught the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven were two different kingdoms. So that he could take the whole New Testament and say this applies to us now and the rest applies to the Jews in the millennial kingdom. But here's what Jesus did to C.I. Schofield. Remember, we're dealing with wrong divisions. So he's pulled something apart that shouldn't be, have been pulled apart. He is saying the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two different kingdoms. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He uses them as synonyms in two adjoined verses. And we'll end right there. I could have a lot more fun with you. And there's a lot more fun on the website with 523 slides there. And you saw that table of a whole lot more divisions the Lord has shown us that we didn't illustrate with slides. The Lord's been kind. When we approach the Bible, we approach it in a way that is rather tedious. To preach sound doctrine, Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. But he told Timothy how to study and how to preach the word, and it involves a lot of rightly dividing the word of truth. So we have to take words and we have to take phrases and say, it sounds like this, but it really means this because of this context and these cross-references here, and that is a tedious way of preaching as opposed to what goes down for preaching today by entertaining audiences. We don't entertain. We want to preach the word of God. There are many benefits that, to get from this study that we've just had. One's to understand why we approach the Bible the way we do, to thank God for the divisions that he has shown us, for our young men to embrace it about the work that it takes to rightly divide the word of truth. You need to be a workman. And the shame that results from not doing it God's way with all the heresies that have come up. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Stand with me, please. Father in heaven, thank you for everything you have shown us from your word. Amen. 
thank you for showing us what you've shown us so far in John chapters 12 through 16. And we're looking forward to you showing us all that you want us to see in John 17. Heavenly Father, we are the least of your people, and I am the least in the way of a pastor. But we thank thee for opening our eyes and revealing these things to babes and hiding them from the wise and prudent. Continue to show us things that we do not see yet and give us the conviction to embrace them, to love them, and to be willing to flush anything that we've arrived at on our own. Grant us thy spirit and open thy word that we may behold wondrous things out of it. We thank thee, Lord of heaven, for the difference that you've made in us versus others. It is not because we are better. It is not because we are brighter. It's because you have been gloriously gracious, and we thank thee. Amen. Go with us now, and Heavenly Father, help us to live our lives for thy honor and glory. If you'll glorify us and favor us in our causes this week, we'll glorify you in return. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. You are dismissed.